Welcome to Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz, a candid conversation as we learn about types of dementias, such as Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, frontal temporal, and Lewy body, and the effects on the people we love. Jill's years of dedication and experience help you adapt, overcome obstacles, and find positive outcomes. It's time for Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz. Well, hi, Caregiver Nation. I hope everybody is great today. I've got kind of a deep and somewhat sad show today. Um, Sad because I'm going to talk about when we actually get to the end of the grieving process. And people will think that is long after the person has died. But the truth of the matter is, as I talk to my clients every day, I tell them the grieving process actually starts when you start seeing the symptoms that a person has and you go to a doctor and get it diagnosed. So one of those two time periods will be the time that you're actually saying goodbye to somebody and you start that grieving process. And I don't want to go through what the grieving process is, but I want to go through the end, saying goodbye to someone. Recently... Uh, one of my very, very dear clients, uh, he had to say goodbye to his wife, and he just adored her. I mean, absolutely adored his wife after being married for 60 years, and he literally went and visited her every single day at the care community. And Unfortunately, the care community that she was at for about four and a half years said she had to move. And after we got her moved, I helped him uh, to a new community. She died less than a month later. And I had said to him that it's time to tell her it's okay to go. If he said everything that he needed to say to her, if he, if he, if he needed anything else that he needed to get out, if he if he could just tell her that him and their kids and their grandkids were going to be okay, you know, it's okay to tell her to go. And he really struggled with that. He felt like if he told her it was okay to go, then he was in some way contributing to her demise, her passing away, which is not true at all. It's not true at all. And, you know, just because he tells her it's okay, to me that brings some semblance of peace. And as we get through that letting someone go and and talking ourselves through the process of they're not going to be here anymore, and sometimes it's okay that you're going to the nursing home every day. Sometimes it's just, it's okay that you do that. You know, you're not worried about it. You're not thinking about, you know, this taking any time away from your life. But we get so sensitized to going to that community every day, to feeding them in the end, to talking with hospice about the process and everything, that it just becomes your daily routine. So to actually say goodbye doesn't feel necessary. But sometimes when that person's hanging on and hanging on, 
you know, it's okay to do that. There's no guilt in that. There's no, there's no you playing God or anything like that. And so many times, and especially in this time, uh, I asked this person to check his wife and see if she was grimacing at all, if she was drawing her arms up and posturing, if her skin tone was changing to sort of a whitish, grayish color, and to try to notice if her brow was furrowed or anything like that, or if she was choking, could she be showing any signs of pain? And if she was showing any signs of pain, ask hospice to give her some pain medication. But understand, if they give her pain medication, it's over. It's over. And I told somebody else that a couple months ago. Um, I I did a show and I told you all that a doctor had told one of my clients that he should just stop feeding his brother. And, and that really ticked me off. I was like, no, that's not how we do things. We don't starve a person. You know, if they're still eating, let them eat. But I said to him, if you want to to do something and you want to change it, giving that person pain medication will shut down their system and they'll be gone within 48 hours. And I had just said to my client that I was talking about first that um, if they give his wife pain medication, she'd probably be gone in within 48 hours. It wasn't 24 hours later that she was gone. That doesn't make you a person who is playing God. That doesn't make you a bad person for making them comfortable with the process. And what about, you know, already mourning the loss of your person? You know, honest to God, you know, letting somebody go, it isn't really for the faint of heart. It's difficult. It's difficult to let somebody dehydrate. It's difficult just to not go and visit them anymore at the care community. You know, even if you're a long-distance caregiver, you have that sadness. You have that angst about, you know, did you see that person enough? Did you help out enough? Were you, you know, a good daughter or son or aunt or niece or nephew or whatever it was, you know? This is the longest goodbye on the planet. We we grieve through the entire process. You know, it's kind of a it's a quiet statement to say it's a long goodbye. You, because in some ways you're staying connected to that person and in another way you're emotionally removing yourself and distancing yourself from that person. It's, it's difficult for people to understand. But I hope that if you are listening and you have lost someone to Alzheimer's, that you know that you did everything you could for them that you gave them all the love and all the care. You did everything for them that you would have wanted them to do for you. This final chapter is 
sometimes weeks. It's sometimes months. Sometimes it's years in the making. You know what I mean? It's them not speaking, them being nonverbal, them, you know, not eating as much, them sleeping more, um, the changes in care levels, you know? And even if somebody says, you know, hey, my wife's actually doing better. She's sleeping more. Um, I think that the medications that they're giving her are helping her to rest and things like that. What seems better to you is probably just a big part of the disease progression. It's a lot easier on the caregiver when the person is sleeping more when they're eating less to a degree. But the person isn't actually getting better. Even if the person, you know, didn't, you didn't like it when the person asked you, you know, repetitive questions and stuff early in the early stages and they um, didn't recognize objects, they didn't do this or that, And that annoyed you. And then all of a sudden, they're not talking to you anymore. Are you questioning the diagnosis? Are you questioning the way you handled it? Are you okay with letting other people take over the care? Are you not okay with other people taking over the care? When they're not talking very much, sometimes they get kind of wobbly, they lose their motor skills, they become incontinent, they don't remember how to go to the bathroom, they don't remember how to feed themselves. The end of this disease is so difficult to watch. There's a lot of things that happen. There's there's your own agony over, you know, whether or not to give them a vaccine. There's your own agony over do not resuscitate. If they get sick with pneumonia or something like that, do you treat it? These are all questions that comes up when somebody's in the end. And that's when you have to look at the safety of that person. Are they still living alone? If they're still living alone, they're neglecting themselves. And if they're neglecting themselves, that could be a problem. If you're going and checking on them every day, that's taking a toll. If you have to get that person into a community because at the very late stage, it's becoming too much for you... Sometimes there's waiting lists. Sometimes it's hard to get into a community. Um, all this stuff can cause an enormous amount of stress, a ridiculous amount of stress. And it sometimes seems to just drop off at the end like, like you're on a roller coaster. I mean, I'm not kidding you. The person's doing fine. And then they're not. 
And what are the end stages? Are they just the person not recognizing themselves? Is it them going way back in time where they think they're a kid? Is it them not walking well? Is it them not being verbal? Is it when you're really struggling to bathe them because they don't seem to know what's going on? You look at them and wonder if there's anybody in there. Even the nonverbal piece is really crucial towards the end in keeping and retaining a connection with your person. I've used music therapy for years to get people who are nonverbal to speak. They feel us. They know we're there even when they're not speaking to you, even when they look like they're not recognizing you. And it's really important if you're going to use something like music to try to reconnect with them, it has to be of their genre. It's their favorite music, not ours, you know, because music actually stays with us the longest. I'm sure that's what's going to happen to me. (laughs) I'm absolutely positive. Somebody will put on music. I'll probably get up and start dancing even if I can't talk. Uh, That's just who I am. And most people, most people are music lovers. I've met a few that don't like music and I just can't even believe it. Uh, You know, it just kind of blows my mind. But people will hear their, you know, college fight song or the Star Spangled Banner, God Bless America, and snap right back into the moment, into lucidity for just a minute. They suddenly respond to you and then they're back to being silent again. But in those late stages, when they're moving on, those are some beautiful things that you can do to bring them back around, to bring them back to you for a moment. And it really is just wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful. So if you can play their favorite music when they are, you know, bedridden, if if they are in a wheelchair, if they're not moving, I highly recommend that you put on, you know, baseball if that was something they enjoyed so they could hear the roar of the crowd and the announcers talking and things like that. And, uh, you know, play those kinds of things that will bring some sensory joy to them. It's a beautiful thing, my friends. We're going to take a short break. We're going to listen to a word from our sponsor, and we'll be right back with this discussion. Carillon at Bellevue Station is a residential community enriching the senior living experience. Our community full of grandeur and elegance is located near Cherry Hills, Colorado, 
We offer independent living and personalized assisted living services and an intimate, caring neighborhood for our residents with Alzheimer's and other dementias. A beautifully appointed spacious apartment, chef-prepared meals, transportation services, and a team devoted to your safety and wellness are what awaits you when you reside at Carillon at Bellevue Station. Call 720-440-8200 or visit carillon at bellevuestation.com for more information. Welcome back to Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz. Okay, we're talking about letting go of someone. The late, late, late stage of whatever dementia disease you're working with, but typically Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, or Lewy body. And touch is huge. Hugging that person, um, rubbing their arms, giving them ice on their lips and keeping their lips moist, playing music for them like I was talking about. The sensory things when somebody is in the dying process can be enormously helpful, enormously helpful. So smell, touch, sound, all those kinds of things. And be aware if that person is a touchy person or if there's somebody that enjoyed the smell of flowers, they like spices. You can take empty spice bottles uh, to their bedside and let them smell cinnamon. Let them smell ice cream. Let them smell popcorn. A hot dog. Things that will remind them of, of days of old that they enjoyed. A specific... Um, aftershave or perfume that they always like to wear. Maybe you could dab a little bit on them or on your hand or something like that. Sounds that they used to enjoy. Like, oh, just as an example, I have one client who was a bowler for years and years and years. So the sound, tape the sound of a bowling alley. Take Tape the sound of a hockey game or a football game or kids laughing or babies crying. Um, You know, whatever it is. You can see sometimes where they will have that rim reaction in their eyes where their eyes will kind of twitch. They may not open their eyes. They may open their eyes and look at you. They may shed a tear. That's not always sad. Maybe that's them saying, you know, that's a beautiful sound. That's a wonderful, wonderful sound to me. You may get them to squeeze your hand or something like that. It's worth a shot. And I would bring something a little bit different every day. I really would. You know, they have a much smaller area of perception But they're still able to hear you if you speak slowly to them. Try not to have too many people in the room at one time. That could be upsetting for them. You know, gauge their energy level. Are they awake? Are they looking at you? Do they seem like they're tired? Are they dozing off? 
But the hearing piece, the ability for them to hear your voice, to hear children's laughter, to hear something familiar, is believed to be the last thing that fades for somebody. They hold on to that. And they enjoy things that are instinctive to them, like maybe a rosary or something. That's why it's always good to, you know, uh, if they're religious, have somebody come in and do the rosary for them or pray over them or whatever it is. If that's comforting for them, if there was something that they enjoyed while they were well and they were were doing, you know, relatively well and healthy and, and things like that, those things will still be interesting to them in those last few moments. In my mom's last few weeks and months, uh, we would play songs for her. Like she loved Anne Murray. She loved the Carpenters. She loved Karen Carpenter's voice. Uh, she loved Wheel of Fortune. Um she loved uh, the soap opera that she used to listen to. You could put it on the TV and she might have some reaction in her eyes. She still loved ice cream after she couldn't talk. So the smell of ice cream seemed important to her. And the, I think the important thing to, to take home on this is that the essence of that person in their last few days sometimes really shines. For fleeting moments, they can still be there. You know? It, it's... It it happens a lot where people will open their eyes and tell you they love you. Um, they may cry. They may squeeze your hand when you're having a heartfelt conversation with them. Look for those kinds of things. Look for that moment. Let go of the guilt of anything you think you didn't do. Let go of the anger that you've had because this disease made your life difficult and the anger that you feel that this didn't turn out the way you thought it was going to, that you didn't get those silver lining golden years with your person. You know, uh, maybe how sad you feel that sometimes you weren't as patient as you should have been or could have been or wanted to be. That you didn't recognize that they weren't being, you know, uncooperative with you. They just didn't know how to do the things that you were asking them to do anymore. There's so much to let go of. And when somebody is in the dying process, we often question our faith. You know, you in, in the grieving process, we make deals with God. 
with our higher power, whoever it is, whatever it is, that if they can just make your person well, if they can just do whatever they're going to do, you'll do something else. You'll never say another crossword to somebody. You'll always treat somebody nicer. And then your person continues to get worse. These are tough. These are really tough things. I have a client that I've been working with for over a year, and her husband got really upset with me one day when he said, I pray every day that God's going to make my wife better. And, you know, this guy wasn't always the best husband. He wasn't always the best partner, but he had a pretty strong faith, and I can see that particular person being absolutely crushed as his wife becomes nonverbal, as she becomes unable to go to the bathroom by herself, as she progresses with this disease. And all I could think to myself, for better or worse, while he was lamenting to me how dead wrong I was that she was going to progress with this disease. Uh, You know, like, how's that working for you? It's not always about God. It's not always about getting what you pray for. Sometimes you have prayers that are answered in ways you don't recognize. Like instead of them making that person better, they continue to get worse. Were your prayers answered? Was your faith in the right place that there were caring, loving people around to take care of your person and take good care of your person through that final stage? Can you look at it that way? Does it have to be cut and dry that God's going to make it better, that God's going to make them better? Maybe the deal is that God's going to make the care better so that person has a good ending. We don't get to choose this stuff, guys. We don't. As difficult as it is, you know, we just because we pray to God that we don't want our person to get worse and so on and so forth, sometimes we get our prayers answered in different ways. So if you are a believer and you're struggling with, you know, why God would let this happen to somebody who's a good person, uh, maybe try to look at it that way. You know, I mean, it is what it is, right? But so be it for me to tell somebody that, you know, well, you can pray all you want, but that probably isn't going to be the case. She's not going to go back to being who she was. She's not going to remarkably get better. That wasn't, I don't think that was his faith talking. I think that's a man who didn't want to lose his wife. It's as simple, simple as that. He wanted so desperately to have her not go down the Alzheimer's path. And mind you, we had this conversation when she was already in late stage. We were already working with the family to get her in a 
care community. And he was not believing it. He He's still to this day, and she's probably maybe a year or two from passing away, but she is already not doing anything for herself. She can't make her own food. She can't walk on her own. She's incontinent. Uh, she's nonverbal now. And he still believes God's going to make her better. Everybody deals with it the way they deal with it. Right? That's just the way it goes. And in that final stage, you really ought to be evaluating what medications they really need at this point to keep them moving, to keep their joints flexible, to keep them comfortable, maintain their nutrition until they can't take any more food. Those are okay. You know, continue to do those kinds of things. It's all right to do that. It's all right to call hospice in. It's all right to be afraid of losing someone. And if you tell them it's okay to go, you didn't cause their death. Right? Even if your relationship was troubled with that person... There's, you didn't cause anything. You might have more grief or guilt, but you didn't cause anything. You didn't, you didn't make them die just by saying it's okay to let them go. We're going to take another break, listen to a message from our sponsor, and we'll be right back. Living and working with Alzheimer's and other dementias can often be challenging. Summit Resilience Training provides education, utilizing non-medical approaches for those who work with our friends affected by dementia. Believing families still need one-on-one assistance, we provide classes which help them understand the diseases affecting their loved ones, offering strategies and techniques for success with activities of daily living and working with confusing behaviors. We offer in-home assessments to clarify symptoms of dementia diseases and help families work together to find moments of joy while living with memory loss and impairment. Education programs instilling person-centered care philosophies are offered for professional caregivers working in communities and homes, which can be customized for their staff. Training is also available for first responders, such as law enforcement, fire, and EMT personnel. We are passionate that people with dementias, such as Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and others, are approached with compassion and understanding, and those who work with them have all the tools they need for success. Call us at Summit Resilience Training, 303-420-6988, to schedule a class or in-home assessment. Visit our website at summitresiliencetraining.com for more information. Welcome back to Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz. Okay, as we round this out in this last part of the show today, you know, what we're missing while the person is still alive is who they were, the experiences of that person, your parent, your spouse, your friend, your companion, your thinking about 
the retirement that you didn't have, the travel that you didn't have, the enjoying grandchildren together or going to their weddings and things like that. What we're missing is the loss of someone who's no longer who they were. And we're not who we were. I always ask people to write down some of the best memories they have of that person and talk to them about it during that dying process in that last week or two. Maintain a sense of humor. Tell them some jokes. Laugh about things if you need to, right? And then there's your own circumstances, your own processing. It's not just the process of them dying. It's a process of you letting go. Part of what happens is sometimes you have doubts about your ability to manage their pain. Maybe you have doubts about the community or the doctors and and people that are helping with this process, and did you choose the right people? Did you finish any unfinished business? Did you have people that you had friction and anger with and mend the fences? You know, those are the things that are hard to deal with. They're hard to deal with because it feels like loose ends. Through the whole process, 10, 12 years, 15, 20 years, whatever it is, you've watched this person go down, 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 down. And in the end, you're kind of afraid to lose them because your existence has become being with them every day. And you question and feel guilt about whether or not you came to see them often enough. Did you do everything you could to help them? You can rationalize this all you want, but your heart aches about stuff like this. And I think the only thing that's going to bring you to some place of peace is knowing that you gave that person joy, that you helped their their dying process be peaceful, that you put enough love and caring people in the room with them And kept the vibe really good, that you had those sounds, you had those smells. You did everything you could. Can you sit and recount with them from the day they were born all the way to the end about their beautiful life? How blessed you were to have them in your life. How blessed they were for the people that were in their system, in their, in their family unit. 
maybe the jobs they did, maybe the way they gave back to their family, their friends, their community, God, you know, the the hymns that they loved. You know, sometimes when we think God has let us down, maybe we feel their strength when we're holding that person's hand and they take their last breath. Think about how beautiful that is when someone leaves this world and you're with them. You're holding their hand. You're singing to them. I had a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful experience when my dad died. It was, I think, October 20th, somewhere, 21st, something like that. And I got a call that he was dying and I flew home. And when I got to his hospital room, the first thing he said to me was, well, it's about time you got here. (laughs) And the second thing he said to me is, will you sing to me? I've been a musician all my life. And I sang every religious hymn I knew my dad loved. I sang to him for probably two hours, every song I could think of, country songs, anything that he liked. And when he died, all of us kids were in the room. All of his grandchildren were in the room. There was probably 20, 25 people in his ICU room. And as he died, we all were around him, holding his hand, touching him, giving him a kiss and everything else. And my niece said, I think Grandpa's glowing. And then the Brahms lullaby played in my hometown. It's a very small town. In the hospital there, when a baby is born, they play Brahms lullaby over the speaker system. And just as my dad took his last breath, that started. And my niece, who was only about 12 at the time, said, I think grandpa's glowing. (laughs) And my dad did a little gasp and smiled and he was gone. To me, that is a beautiful thing. And for my mom, my dad didn't die of Alzheimer's. He smoked heavily and had lung cancer. And when he went in to have lung surgery, he had a heart attack on the table and went downhill from there. And that was kind of an unexpected thing. He was only 68. My mom died at 81 from Alzheimer's. And we spent about a month saying goodbye to her. I flew home. I would sing songs to her. We painted her nails. People in the community, the nursing home, the nurses would come and they all took pictures with her. My sisters got all their hands, you know, together with my mom. I was kind of bummed that 
I wasn't in that. <laughs> um, but, you know, just having that time when we knew she was dying and me trying to help my family through, uh, you know, her dehydration process and how painful that was for a couple of my sisters. We need to we need to feed her. We need to do this or that. Mom did not want to be resuscitated. She didn't want to get better. She ended up getting really sick with the flu and pneumonia. And, uh, you know, it just kind of spiraled from there. And they didn't understand to a degree about hospice coming in. They thought hospice was going to take over and all the nurses in the community didn't even know enough about hospice to know that that wasn't people coming in and taking their place. Um, they'd cared for her for four years and they wanted to be the ones in there with her. And they thought hospice was going to come in and like kick them out of her care and they were upset about it. And that's not the case at all. So understanding all this when somebody's dying is important. And even if you're just saying goodbye in your own head after that person doesn't know who you are anymore. You're saying it in your head, but your heart's not saying goodbye until the moment they're gone. Some people start the goodbye process two years in advance. It doesn't matter when you do it. It just matters that you do it. Because if you don't go through that process of saying goodbye, you will struggle with guilt and regret for the rest of your days. That's not necessary. It's not necessary. And things that happen after they die, what happens after they die? Are you going, have you been going to a support group the whole time? Are you still hanging out with your support group? Are you still attending a support group after they passed away? I hope so. I hope so. Because there's a lot of desensitizing to do. There's a lot of work to get through when you're horribly lonely. When you you get up in the morning and you think, oh, I've got to go to the nursing home and then you don't have to go. I have several people that still attend support groups months, even years. I heard yesterday I was at a provider fair uh, and there was a lady from the Alzheimer's Association that I shared my booth with because it was 100 degrees in Denver. It was hotter than Hades. And she told me that she has done a support group for six years And that there's a lady who's been going to that support group and her husband died 19 years ago and she still goes. That blew my mind. But, you know, everybody does what they need to do. So I I really, when I have a support group, I try to make that support group be tighter. I ask them to do things outside of that support group, like after the group is over, go down to the local bar or restaurant and everybody have dinner and have some drinks, listen to some live music, meet for lunch, whatever it is. So I started a 
going forward from here support group for my people. And it it really worked. They still, the, the a core group that I had at a community here in town, I had that group for five years. And we started going in about the second or third year out for dinner and out for lunch and stuff like that. And the last one's wife just passed away two weeks ago. And they all meet every single Thursday. And he was the last one to lose his person. And even on the way here to the studio tonight, I called him because he just had her funeral last Thursday or Saturday. And I invited him over for dinner tonight. So when I get done recording the show, I'm having dinner with him because I know he needs that help. He's horribly lonely, even though he has his friends and they've all been through it and they've all kind of worked through it. He's trying to find himself again. He's trying to find out who he is without her, even though she spent four and a half years or five years in a community and he visited her every day. The end process is incredibly difficult and we grieve in a different way after they've died. We've spent years missing and grieving what that what the future was supposed to be and how it all ends, but it's a whole different thing when the person is gone and you have to figure out who you are now. You're not going to be by their side every day. How do you go on and be happy without them? How do you maintain those friendships? So I hope all of you out there are in a support group and that that support group is really helping you and thoughtful about what your needs are. I know it's been a deep subject today, but some of you needed to hear it. Some of you need to hear the processes and what you need to do and how to be the best you can be and how you can say goodbye in the best possible way and in your way and in their way that's beneficial for everybody. I hope this helps somebody around the world today. And you've got all my love and admiration. Caregiver Nation, I'll see you next week on Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz. You've been listening to Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz. To learn more about her resources, services, classes, or to book speaking engagements, visit Jill's website at summitresiliencetraining.com. A new podcast drops every Tuesday, so join us as we learn more about dementias, resilience, and overcoming obstacles to find a positive outcome. Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz can be found on your favorite podcast provider. Please subscribe and give us a five-star rating. Musical and technical support provided by Brian Hunter. See you next week.